bearing in mind that the health service is equivalent to a you know a, a small country actually a medium-sized country in terms of its footprint where's it all coming from usually by now we would have announced the winners of the bmj awards but coronavirus happened we're still working to acknowledge some of the best medicine from all around the uk in a whole range of categories But until that happens, we've decided to give out the awards for two categories, Outstanding Contribution and Research Paper of the Year. In the following interview, Fiona Godley, the BMJ's Editor-in-Chief, talks to the winner of the Outstanding Contribution Award about their work. Hello, I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and I'm here to present a special award, the BMJ's 2020 Award for Outstanding Contribution to Health. And I am delighted to say that the award this year goes to Dr. David Pension, Founder Director of the NHS Sustainable Development Unit and champion of efforts to understand and tackle climate change within healthcare. Hello, David. Hello, Fiona. It's it's clear to me that what SDU did that was unusual and important was that it really took the data seriously and you found a way to um, actually track the carbon footprint of healthcare in in really some for- forensic detail. Uh, and in, in that work, which was, you know, no doubt very hard and, and um, required a lot of diligence and, and, and expertise, the, the, the findings from that seem to be sufficiently surprising and unusual to really catch the imagination. Is that your sense? Yes, I think that's that's absolutely right. I think I was rather taken by my experience in the tobacco debate when everybody was used to hearing that tobacco is dangerous. Everybody knows that. Everybody knew that. I think what people, what we hadn't as health professionals got across is how dangerous it is. But I think it wasn't until we started saying that, you know, half the people who use tobacco regularly will die prematurely of it. And I think it's it's one thing to say it is dangerous. It's another thing to say how dangerous to quantify. And apropos your point of measuring it, I think we wanted to start off by making an impact with something objective rather than just being another voice saying something must be done. We had to be rational and objective and start with in a sense something that no one had ever done and no one had ever measured the footprint of a complete healthcare system uh, in serial form measuring it every few years so we could track it and I guess subsequently working out although it's big so where is it coming from not to attribute blame but to attribute to direct action really so yeah, you, so we, we measured it. I mean, that was one of the first things we did and continue to do. And, I mean, for me, when the first set of data came out, one of the surprising findings um, was the extent to which pharmaceuticals uh, seem to have such a, a huge footprint of procurement. Um, uh, so that was one question. And the other was about, you know, whether to include in our net zero target the um, the, the totality of the impact of health care uh, activity, so including transport to and from hospital, um, and all the all the other sort of rather more you could call, call them marginal, but still very substantial contributors to the total footprint. 
Yes, that's, I mean, that's right. I mean, if, if, you, if we ask people, and we are, as we asked ourselves, where is the likely source of all this huge footprint? I mean, bearing in mind that the health service is equivalent to a, you know, a, a small country, actually a medium-sized country in terms of its footprint, where's it all coming from? You would have thought that it would be around transport and, and heating and lighting. But in fact, you know, as you, as you say, it's from buying stuff. And buying stuff, it's where our own personal footprint comes from, really. That's, you know, over half of our footprint, three quarters of our footprint comes from just buying stuff. And it was quite a surprise to us that buying of pharmaceuticals and medical technology contributed so much. And I'm not sure we've even bottomed out as yet why that is. We know that one of the reasons is that, um, you know, we do a lot of good, we, we are pioneers in the health service and do a lot of things well. And waste is one thing we do really well in the health service. And all the um, incentives to treat pharmaceuticals judiciously in terms of waste are not there. They're not there. There's no incentive, really. There's a financial incentive, but that's distant from most people's prescribing habits. Um, I mean, GPs have made a big, big effort to cut down on prescribing costs. But I mean, I, th I think that the latest data is that about half of all money spent in primary care is spent on pharmaceuticals. Um, and you're talking nine, 10 billion pounds there. So uh, and with an overall procurement budget for the health service in this country of about 30 billion pounds, you would think, would you not, that we have a big opportunity to make some big changes. But, you know, as we all know, the health service is not one system on which you can pull one lever and action happens over 1.3 million staff. It's a, it's a very confederated, franchised, uh, you know, badged system, which is very difficult to control like that. Um, but so, th so that research is important, but it, the much more still needs to be done about bottoming out, in a sense, what are these economic and ethical principles that, you know, need to be hardwired into the health service, which we've actually hardwired into ourselves. Everybody's very, um, very au fait with, you know, fair trade coffee and fair trade cotton. We're not particularly good at fair trade pharmaceuticals, for instance. So not just looking at the environmental impact of, global supply chains, but the, the ethical impact, which are, you know, highly, highly aligned and highly relevant. I've heard you say that um, one of the things you, you managed to do was to start the conversation so that people um, felt that this was no longer mm. something that was on the edge of life, but actually was a mainstream. Mm. And you, you've made the point that actually making it a health issue has been one of the, the challenges and, and a, a gradual success, I think. Um, what, what did you what would you say have been the barriers to that conversation um, and also to, 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 to doctors and nurses and other clinicians really seeing this as, as something that, that, that is there? In, within their remit, within their role. Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> I often say that when people people have, from other sectors have said to me, it must be easy doing this in the health sector because it's clear that climate change is a health issue, and of course you've got huge numbers of staff who are very socially, ethically, liberally minded about the future, and when you look at things that health professionals have addressed in the past from cholera to tobacco to obesity to HIV. Many of these are social issues as much as, as health issues. It should be easy for the, for the health system. 
And I guess it surprised me that actually it hasn't been easy for the health system. You know, we've got a few outstanding ambassadors uh, like Hugh Montgomery and others and, and, and Richard Horton at The Lancet and yourself at the BMJ and, and journal editors from around the world have been great. But actually, I often characterize the, the situation in health professionals by people are full on or full off. There's no middle ground. There seems to be very middle ground. And actually being full on is very helpful if you're cool and rational and objective and balanced. It's not always very helpful if you're single-minded and, crucially, a non-listener. So one of the things that I think we learned as a team from each other at the beginning of the journey, this very small team, was go out and listen. Listen, listen, listen. And actually, you would think that doctors would be good at this because we've been trained to listen to patients. But actually, when you, when you are very fixed and passionate about something, it is uh, surprising how often your um, listening skills go out of the window. And it can so, be very off-putting for the other person to have the... Well, exactly. So, so that's right. So, so one, of the thing, one of the things we did, I think, well, and it's no credit to me, it was other team members who sort of drew everybody else's attention to that, is go out and consult, listen to people. So we spent the first two or three years listening to people, asking people questions about to what extent does the health service per se have a role in this global journey of sustainability, carbon reduction, survivability, climate chaos, etc. And we learned a huge amount. But that that took some effort to just listen and put your own views and your own biases and your own prejudices aside. And um, so that was that was great learning. That was great learning for me. It was great learning for the team. It was great learning for the health service. In case of anyone listening to this who, who has any doubts about the importance of climate change to health, um, both you know in, in countries that are, are lacking in resilience, but also even in a country like the UK, uh, what, what would be your sort of elevator pitch to them? Well, I think the first, the first, the first, well, I wouldn't start with a pitch, actually. I'd start with a listen. I would, I would, my pitch would be to ask them, not are they, not are they concerned, but I'd ask them in a sort of, in what way are you concerned? And, and that, that, that's not a subtle distinction. That's a very important distinction, because I think you have to, you have to tell future truths and you have to listen to people in ways that make it clear that this is not a decision between is climate change happening or is it not? That, that's a terrible dichotomy to perpetuate, is to ask people in what way are they concerned and what do they think they and others might be able to do better, faster, quicker, more ambitiously. And that, that again, a bit like the listening issue, is a very important principle because it starts to norm change. It starts to normalize change. I think we, we normalize non-change. That's instinctively what we do as a society, as a species. But if we can normalize development, improvement, change, then that makes a big difference. So if you say to a group, just put your hands up and what do you think we should be doing? Those who are very skeptical will simply think, oh, I see, we've, we've got past the, is it happening or isn't it happening? We've got into the, what are we doing about it? Okay, fine. And the, they'll get sucked along. I mean, 
th that's the hope anyway. And I think there's a lot of quite a lot of behavioral psychological evidence that that's the case. So listening to people, it's a bit like going back to the clinical situation. If you listen to your patient long enough, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. And I think if you listen to someone about climate change, they will eventually tell you what they are minded to do. Um, it may not be accurate, but and they may not truly believe it themselves. But it's very important to start the conversation on the idea of we're all in this together. It's a collective action. There are many things we can do. They're, they're, they're all very positive. They can be very positive in multiple ways. You know, as that old quip goes, you know, what happens if, you know, climate change is a hoax and we create a better world for nothing? I mean, that, that's very important in terms of, of making this a, a norm, making change a norm. You and I have talked, David, in the past, and I'm sure others, you've talked to others about this, about the really important balance between hope and despair. Um, and, you know, instilling fear and, and uh, terror, really, when you look at the data on climate change or the evidence coming through from the climate scientists, um, uh, how paralyzing potentially that can be and how does one balance that against the potential for uh, building a new future? Um, how, how, how are we getting that right? How can we get that right? Yeah, it's a very good question. I don't really know. I mean, I think some people are getting it right. Um, and I think there are examples of um, using the evidence uh, more wisely in that we it's probably clear that scare tactics in themselves do not incite action in the in the way you want. My understanding, and I may be wrong on this, but my understanding, and this is the evidence I've used in the work we've done, is that you can use you can use shock and awe in terms of data to alert people and that alert lasts half a second so the issue that you mention about hope has to be brought in almost immediately hope and rescue so to say uh, and i think chris rapley um is one of the best proponents of this is to say we are in a real mess. We're going to hell in a handcart if we do nothing. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But the great news is that there's a whole series of technological and behavioral interventions which we know work, and we need to do them now. Now, I think that is sort of rescue within seconds. And I think the evidence is that rescue within seconds with those people who are alerted is, to, is very important to stop them going into a much more powerful human coping mechanism, which is denialism. Uh, and I, I think, I, from my reading of it, denialism is, I think Aidan Halligan said, you know, if you think love or lust is the most powerful human emotion, try denialism. That is really the most powerful. Um, so we have got to get around one of our many failings as a species, which is survival through denialism because it won't work on this occasion. It absolutely won't work. And I think Chris Rackley is right to, to rescue people very quickly. And that's, again, Fiona, why you need teams of people, because some of us are very good at scaring the hell out of people, which on, in itself is, is probably completely ineffective and very damaging. And some people are very good at rescue, and you know what I call pathological optimists. So you need those sort of yin and yang working very closely together 
to inspire collective action in the right direction. The fact that we're talking like this and not in our dinner jackets in a lovely hotel in the centre of London is because of COVID. And I mean, that has changed so many things so radically and so quickly. Uh, I, I wonder your thoughts on on the impact of COVID on the whole debate about climate change. Has it pushed it into the shadows or could it be part of the catalyst that makes us take climate more seriously? Well, I think it has to be part of the catalyst, otherwise we really are going to hell in a handcart. I think some things, it's pushed climate change onto the back burner. But some other things, in some other ways, it, it's pulled it forward. And that, I mean, I, my opinion on this is no better than anybody else's, really. But um, it's quite clear that if we're, again, I'll go back to the, the paramount importance of framing um, and collectivism and collaboration in trying to get us all to understand that COVID and climate change, even though very different, one is infinitesimally small and microbiological, and one is infinitesimally large and planetary, they're both part of the same picture. Um, and if we can frame that well, it can be a useful catapult for um, bringing things forward which need bringing forward and of course it can do many other things as well it, i mean all the actions so far has actually shown and rather shocked governments as to what their powers are i mean there's no doubt that although action is needed from every sector of civil society for both climate climate change and covid governments have not traditionally been very brave with climate change they've they've been very um cautious about voting habits um but it does show it does reinforce to everybody that change is possible you can change things overnight and actually when you change things together when we all do it together there's remarkable public acceptability remarkable public acceptability and of course once one sector or one person breaks ranks it falls down like dominoes. It really falls down like dominoes. So one of the lessons we're sort of learning or relearning is that it's going to have to be very collective action that's going to take us. And that's not just shared suffering, that's shared benefit. And in terms of international cooperation, I mean, one of the fears is that, that the rise of nationalism and, and that the organisations that we have felt were in some way invulnerable um, and important in the world are being denigrated and with uh, President Trump's decision to stop funding the WHO um, and, and, and other, other things emerging um, out of COVID. Uh, is it your sense that, 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 that there's, that's a direction of travel that will continue or can we pull things back and, and, and make them better, stronger? Well, I sincerely hope we can pull things back because I, I, my instincts or my values tell me that that's not a, very, not a very palatable set of circumstances to do the future well. I mean, it might be that, I mean, th this is probably a sort of um, a hope that the 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 shortcomings of populism are more starkly shown through the data from COVID. I think if you do were to do, if it were possible to do a regression analysis on the systems that have done well and the systems that have done badly, and then say, well, 
let's have a planetary set of systems that have done well through COVID, you'd probably find they would do well for climate as well. And it may be, it may be, wouldn't it be wonderful if COVID shows the inherent short-termism and selfishness of populism as political systems? Wouldn't that be great? It would be great. And the other thing that COVID has obviously shown up is, is the um, huge social inequalities and the, 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 the mm. ethnic and racial uh, mm. inequalities, which are now exploding with such, such sort of extraordinary effect in the state, but also echoing across uh, other countries, including the UK. Um, I mean, that, that, that may seem like a negative, but could be turned into a positive for, for change. I hope so. That would, wouldn't that be wonderful as well? I mean, I, and I think going back to the sort of pathological optimism, one of the, I suppose, one of the principles that I and our team try to adopt is one of planned opportunism, of being ready for change when others are ready. And I think, apropos your, your large-scale question about COVID, is COVID is something which we should seize on as an opportunity to do changes that are necessary that wouldn't be would be less possible without COVID. Um, I mean, I don't want to take attention away from the massively terrible quality li- adjusted life years that have been lost through COVID globally. But you know, we we can multitask. We can manage the present and the future at the same time. <laughs> So, David, just a bit about you. People will be interested in how you mm. how you, how you became the, the the person in the role that you did. Mm. Um, you qualified as a doctor in Oxford, um, and then mm. went on to the London School of Hygiene, Tropical Medicine, mm. um, and moved into public health medicine. And then you were a joint director of public health in Cambridgeshire, and then director of the public health observatory in Cambridge from two thousand and one until you mm. founded the SDU. What what uh, you've said that you know the environment and 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 related issues have been important to you for as long as you can remember. Uh, I've heard you say that. What what do you think um, was was the kind of kernel that that that, that turned you in that direction? Well, I suppose I, my journey was slightly odd. It's very difficult to characterise one's own journey with no natural comparator. But when I was young, I mean less than seventeen years old, I was a I was very environmentally active, hugely environmentally active. You know, when everybody else had... Um... Tell us when that was, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say in the 1960s and early 1970s, you know, I was very nerdy about the environment. And, and for a young person, you know, still at school, quite active. Now, what, but the interesting thing is that when I got to medical school, and started becoming well, as a junior doctor, my actions and passion cooled a lot. Not, not because I thought they were less important, but because I do something which a lot of noble professions do, which is, well, I'm doing, I think I'm doing good things in another area. Therefore, I'm buying my route to heaven through this medium, not through that medium. But actually, slowly over about 25 years in, in the health system, I could feel I was getting more and more frustrated, not just about, you know, the big causes of, you know, social injustice globally or poverty or the preventability of so much disease we see in this country. Those are all now. But but this environmental issue and particularly climate change as the the evidence got stronger and more urgent. I thought I cannot do this. I cannot be true to myself. 
you know, I am not being what, you know, if I were a religious person, I would say, you know, I'm not doing what I was put here to do. I'm just not doing that. I'm not a religious person, but I would, so I got more and more frustrated. So it was a very, very happy confluence of opportunities in 2007, 2008, when, when you know, Tony Juniper helped steer the Climate Change Act through and David Nicholson said we must do something and an enlightened health service manager said, let's not do it in the Department of Health. Let's do it in the NHS. Let's make it operational. Let's make it real. Let's make it practical. And that was a that was a very very good decision, um, not mine obviously, and um, so that's really how it came to happen. And that's been quite helpful for me because if I were too passionate, if I were overzealous, I might be berating my clinical colleagues about why aren't you more concerned about the climate? But you know, I have been in that system, and I know what it's like to not only be very busy, you know, and Goodness knows how many people in the health service are busy now at this very second, but how noble organizations can often focus on their own particular speciality, forgetting that, of course, we have the, a huge opportunity. Doctors are dangerously trusted. And, you know, when we speak out about things, it has a very profound effect. Um, and, you know, again, that's been one of the other issues has been getting getting physicians and surgeons and pediatricians and what have you to 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 feel confident enough to say i feel strongly about this because it affects not the future of the planet but the health of my patients and and david therefore what to the to, to people listening who are doctors nurses other other people working in healthcare what what would you uh hope to see them doing both as individuals and as parts of bigger organizations well, I wouldn't expect them all to become climate change nerds or climate change activists, but I would expect people to understand that, you know, we have no planet, we have no health service, and we have no health. And, okay, that's an impossible thing to operationalize, of course, but one of the most powerful things that many people have done, many doctors have done, is simply ask questions, is simply inquire is simply to show their concern that by staying silent, we do damage. By saying nothing, it is harmful. So just by a junior doctor saying to a procurement department in their hospital trust, we seem to waste a lot of things. Is there any way I can help as a doctor in the procurement committee of the hospital? That must sound the most boring thing in the world, but the procurement you know, they would love it. They love it. I mean, most hospital systems love having clinical input because it gives them reality and credibility and clout. And so, I mean, I've always said that one of the most powerful few words you can ever use in, in system changes to say to others, how can I help? It's a very difficult phrase to refuse. So I would like to help. What are you doing with which you think I can help? I'm, I'm concerned about this. I'm sure you are too in some way. Um, how can I help? How can we do something together better now? And, and David, what now for you? Um, what, 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 what do you um, hope to achieve? Um, in well, one, one of the things, I guess, is doing what you alluded to earlier, Fiona, which is 
I mean, I should be in Australia at the moment, um, working with a very dedicated group of, of uh, health professionals, doctors, academics there. In a sense, going through the mistakes we made here and some of the successes and saying, how could they be replicated in Australia? And, and, and helping them in any way I can, giving them the confidence that change can happen uh, if you if you have a you know a, a ton of luck and an ounce of pluck to do it, you have to be ready. Be, you have to be ready for change, even if it's most unlikely that those opportunities will come. You have to be ready. You you really do. Um, and it would be tragic if everybody felt in places like Canada or or Australia or the US, which are countries I uh, you know where I have colleagues I've worked with, if suddenly the time comes. And the minister says, right, I've got a big budget for this. What do you want me to do? And you say, oh, my goodness, give us, give us a few weeks to write a paper. No, no, I need to know now. So it's a difficult message to sell, but you have to be ready. You have to have things up your sleeve. I think one of the previous, I think Ken Kalman said, the previous chief medical officer in this country, said one of his techniques was always to have so many things up his sleeve that he knew could be done. If someone came to him and said, I've got this budget, I've got this opportunity, I've got this department, I've got this, he said, perfect, listen, this is what you have to do, and pull it out of his sleeve. So having those suggestions ready and almost pre-prepared and adaptable is, gonna, is very important. And that's the sort of thing I do. So doing that with groups of people, but also doing what lots of people like you and I do, which is mentor people, support people, teach you know, research, contribute to the journal, what have you, yeah. Well, David, more power to your elbow. I hope this award will, will give you a, another boost of energy and I, I really look forward to uh, welcoming you perhaps at next year's awards as the, as the recipient of the 2020 BMJ Award for Outstanding Contribution to Health. Thank you very much and congratulations. Well, thank you, Fiona. It's been a great pleasure and a great honour. That's it for this podcast, but we've also just published the interview with the winner of the Research Paper of the Year Award, one which has already improved obstetric outcomes. That's available, along with all of our other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. As Fiona said, the rest of the awards will be happening fairly soon. But in the meantime, if you want to find out more about the categories or the previous winners, have a look at the bmjawards.bmj.com. Links, as always, in the podcast text. We'll be back next week with more of our GP podcast, Deep Breath In. That one's looking at trust and the new Cumberledge report, what that means for GPs. We'll also be back with another one of our talk evidence. A bit of a coronavirus update, as always, but some more on transparency. So until then, thanks for listening.